Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Well, for those of you that are joining us perhaps for the first time, uh, we at Grace Crossing Church are in a series that we're continuing today called Ghost Stories, where we're actually looking at the appearances of Jesus following his resurrection. Uh, remarkable accounts found in the Gospels of this. And what we're doing is extracting some really incredible teachable moments for us as a church family, for us as individual believers and followers of Christ. And to get us started this morning, I want to, by way of review, go back to something I touched on briefly last weekend that I think is worth, again, framing uh, this entire series and especially today's talk. It's actually uh, loosely based on what's called Bloom's Taxonomy, uh, Dr. Benjamin Bloom was a, um, an educational psychologist who in 1956 released some kind of findings and came to a conclusion that, that we retain as students knowledge based upon the level of application. So in other words, the more you apply what you're learning, the more you will retain what you're learning. And here's one of the spinoffs. There are many behavioral and learning models that have come out of this, out of his findings. But here's one that we talked about last week and I want to review quickly called the five levels of belief. Here's just another way to say what really Dr. Bloom was trying to bring forth. In, in our levels of belief, it all begins with the first level, which is called awareness. When you come to Grace Crossing Church, you're becoming aware each and every week of things. Different pieces of knowledge perhaps you never knew before. And when you become aware of something, all of a sudden it begins to be on your radar in a new way. There's a piece of information you now have that you didn't have prior to hearing it. It moves from there to a place and to a level called pondering. You might begin to think more about it. You might begin to investigate a little bit deeper. It might, it might kind of pique your curiosity, and you want to go further into that information to learn more about it. It's now getting lodged in your cerebral cortex. The third level is value. If that information is information that you care about, especially begin to care deeply about, you might say you really value that information. It's important to you. In fact, you may say that it's not only important for me, but it's important for everybody else to know this piece of information. Now, the fourth and fifth level are where we really turn things around. The fourth level is called priority, prioritization. It's when you actually begin to put legs to that piece of knowledge or information. And finally, at the very crux of this and peak of this, you are now owning it. It is now something that you go, I didn't just hear about this. I didn't just learn about this. I don't just value this. But watch this. It's now changed my entire lifestyle. And until there is behavioral modification, we really can't claim that we believe something, can we? Which is why you'll see a gap between three and four. Between value and prioritizing something, there is what's called the action or the behavioral gap. And until this gap gets crossed over, it means that that information simply remains stuck at the cognitive level. It's up here. But when we cross over and we begin to actually apply that knowledge to our life, then it begins to become a part of modifying the way that we live. And here's the point of this and why it's so important. 
And by the way, this is applicable, applicable for nearly everything in life when it comes to learning or hearing information. But here's why this is so important for this series. The disciples were aware that Jesus was alive. They were aware of the resurrection of Jesus, but they were far from owning it. What they needed was they, and what they wanted was empirical evidence that Jesus actually was alive. They, they, they wanted some sort of proof, positive, that Jesus was alive. And the Bible tells us, in Mark's gospel, what happens? Chapter 16, verses 9 through 14. When Jesus rose early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. So so they're broken because Jesus has died. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they didn't believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Now, last weekend, we talked about the first principle out of this text, and it's this. Jesus often appears to each of us in a different way. That's so interesting, isn't it? The top of this, afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form. And if you weren't with us last weekend, I really strongly urge you to go to our podcast, and I want you to hear John's story from last weekend. What John's story illustrated is that Jesus often appears when we least expect him to, and he often appears in ways that we least expect him to. Now this morning, there's a second principle that I want to extract from the text, and it's this, to see Jesus, we must engage our faith. Now, I know that's elementary. I know that's so fundamental But you've got to hear what we're going to talk about here this morning. What the Bible says in Mark's gospel is they did not believe it and they did not believe them. Watch this. They didn't believe the message that Jesus was alive. They also didn't believe the messengers that Jesus was alive. They had their suspicions. They were filled with doubt. Who wouldn't be? And one of those disciples, one of the remaining 11, has really gotten particular uh, notice by many of us, and he's actually risen to a place of fame, not for a positive thing, but for a negative thing. His name, as most of us know him today, is Doubting Thomas. Most of us here have probably heard about Doubting Thomas, or we've heard somebody called a doubting Thomas. Well, here's the narrative where we get that idea. John chapter 20. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and unless I can put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. 
Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. You know, Thomas gets kind of a bad rap, I think. Because like Thomas, I think every single one of us in this auditorium today have a deep quest and a yearning for proof. And that deep desire for proof is actually facilitated through a series of questions. In other words, we are searching for answers, and when we're searching for answers, we begin to ask questions. Every parent in this auditorium knows that that deep quest for information, for knowledge, for answers begins when a child is very young. My kids ask question after question after question after question. So I only had one question growing up to my kids. Why do you ask so many questions? And we know the answer to it, right? The answer is kids are curious. We as adults are too. And curiosity that is fueled by uncertainty has led us as adults to continue to ask questions. And so let me say it for the record because I think it's so significant for you to hear this today. Asking questions is not wrong. Searching and seeking is not wrong. In fact, paradoxically, watch this, without uncertainty, without unanswered questions, there would be no need for faith. You don't need trust in a relationship if you have complete evidence. Think about your relationship with your closest friends. Think about your relationship with your spouse. 31 years ago when my wife and I married, I chose to employ trust. Now, I I didn't have 100% proof that she was always going to be honest with me. I didn't have 100% proof that she was never going to be unfaithful to me. I didn't have 100% truth that she would love me in my good times and my not-so-good times. All I did was I chose to employ my trust in her and watch what happens. As she has proven herself to be trustworthy, my trust has skyrocketed. That's how it works. And in our relationship with God, even though we have a quest for for knowledge and for information, to have questions answered, the reality is this. Without faith, you don't have to have trust in a relationship. And so Thomas gets this bad rap of being a doubter of God. When in reality, I think God and Jesus appeared to Thomas the way Thomas needed him to appear. Thomas needed the evidence in that form and in that way. And so I think Thomas, and the reason I say he gets this bad label is because I am personally convinced that Thomas simply did what the other disciples didn't have the courage to do. He admitted it. He he acknowledged it. He's the first disciple to actually say what the others are thinking. He's the only guy that actually says it. I think a better label for him would be Honest Thomas. Because it is not a sin to be honest with God. And it's not a sin to be honest about your feelings. What is a sin is to be emotionally dishonest with God. Pretend something that simply isn't there. And so what Thomas does is he gets what he needed. And I love 
Jesus' final response to him. Because it's so applicable for every one of us in this auditorium today. Here's what he said to Thomas. Jesus told him, you believe because you see me. Those who believe without seeing me will be truly blessed. Did you know that you are truly blessed here today? Did you know that every single one of us that choose to put our faith and trust in God without seeing are actually more blessed than those like the disciples who saw? You know, sometimes we envy the disciples and say, I wish I could have been there. But that definition is exactly consistent with what faith is. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Look at what it says. Faith is the confidence. Say that word with me, confidence. It's the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance. Say assurance. About things we cannot see. Verse 3 says this. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command. That what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. So I have a question for you this morning. How many of you, by a show of hands, were there when, when the world was created? Let me see your hands. If you were there when the world began, lift it up real high. Come on, let me see if you were there. I mean, it's the reality is, right, none of us were there to see the world created. And yet I suspect every one of us today have a philosophical belief in how the world came to be. You might be an evolutionist here this morning. You might believe that the world was created by some big bang, some intense gravitational pull that pulled finite matter through a black hole into infinite density. You might believe that today. Or you might be on the other side of the spectrum where you believe in creation, that God created everything that we see in the world. And watch this, wherever you fall on that continuum of how the world was created, it takes faith. Because you and I were not there to see it. Now, you might want to know what my position is today. I believe in the Big Bang Theory. I believe, I believe God spoke it and bang, it happened. That's what I believe. I believe that's the narrative of what the Scripture teaches. And so I'm on the continuum, believe me. And I can relate to those who believe in the Big Bang, but, but my belief is that the bang came because God said. God spoke it. God saw what was not there and designed it for us and what we see today. We, we see with our eyes, but we weren't there to prove. That's faith. Verse 6. It is impossible to please God without faith. That's the crux of the matter today. Without faith, not one of us here can be pleasing and honorable to God. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe what? That God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely are seeking after him. The problem with the disciples was that they had a faith problem. The problem with the disciples was that they wanted empirical evidence that Jesus was alive. 
And so what does Jesus do when he shows up to them for the first time? It's very interesting. I want to revisit it in Mark chapter 16. Look at what it says. He, Jesus, rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. There are two different things spoken of here. Lack of faith, refusal to believe. They are not one and the same. They are two totally different spiritual conditions. Lack of faith is doubt, and we've already established that doubt does not neutralize our faith. Doubt galvanizes our faith. It makes it stronger. you got to have it. And so, so, so doubt, which is created by uncertainty and leads to questions, is a very God-honoring thing. Nothing wrong with our doubt, as long as it takes us to the right place. But what of this refusal to believe? This is pretty ugly. But the idea of a refusal to believe is the word disbelief. It literally means to refuse to believe something that is real or true. Let me give you another, another quick uh, illustration of this from, from nature. You know, you may have grown up in a way and never learned about gravity. Maybe you don't believe in gravitational pull. Maybe you have flown on a plane and said there's no such thing as gravitational pull because I can fly 35,000 feet above the earth. Well, the next time you visit New York City and you go to visit the, the new Freedom Tower and you go as high as you can to the 94th floor, um, if you doubt gravitational pull, that's one thing. But if you disbelieve it, if you refuse to believe something that is true or real and put it to the test and choose to try and see if it actually is true, I'll bet my farm that you aren't going to make it. And I don't even own a farm. Now, now the issue is this this morning. What caused their disbelief? What made them have what the Bible calls disbelief or refusal to believe? Stubbornness. The word in the original Greek means hard-heartedness. So watch this. Where doubt is created by uncertainty, disbelief is created by a calloused heart. A refusal to believe is created by a calloused heart, which means hard-hearted. And as I read through the Scripture, Old and New Testament alike, I can tell you that hard-heartedness is one of the few issues where God toes the line. God has a no-zero-tolerance policy for hard-heartedness. And it begs a deeper question. Let's drill down on this a little deeper. What creates stubbornness and hard-heartedness? Well, I'm not going to give you this morning an exhaustive list, but I'll give you what I believe are the three primary chief causes of our hearts becoming hardened. Number one, pride. Don't look now, but it's in all of our DNA, spiritually. Every one of us in this auditorium have a propensity toward pride. A know-it-all attitude. The second, I think, cause of hardened heart and stubborn hearts is poor heart health. 
Physically, when you don't take care of your heart, it catches up to you. Spiritually and emotionally, it's identical. When we neglect our inner world, guess what happens to the heart? Our spiritual life begins to to atrophy. We begin to experience something on the inside with our emotions and our spiritual life that is not honorable to God. And there's a third, even, I think, more dangerous and more sinister cause of a hard heart. And it's unforgiven or unresolved offense. Let me speak about this for just a moment. I've learned two things about being offended. First of all, I've learned that we are only offended by people we care deeply about. You might be hurt by somebody else, but you're not offended unless you care deeply. And when you care deeply, you have the potential of being offended. The second thing that I've learned is that offended people often become offensive. They turn around and they actually do to others and to those around them exactly what was done to them. It's one of the greatest tactics of the enemy. This is what the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 12. Look after each other so that no one of you fails to receive the grace of God. That's what keeps our hearts soft. Watch out that no poisonous root of of bitterness grows up to trouble you, and watch this, corrupt many. Nelson Mandela said it this way. Resentment is like drinking poison and then expecting it to kill your enemy. It's exactly what it's like. When we become offended, guess what happens? We begin to allow this root of bitterness to take place in our heart. Every one of us here have been offended. I have been offended. You have been offended. But if we do not deal with that offense with God's grace, guess what it ultimately can do? It can also corrupt your life and defile everyone around you. People get tainted by people who have un forgiven offenses, and unresolved offenses. So that's what causes this refusal to believe. But what is the remedy? Well, what the Bible says in Mark's gospel is that Jesus rebuked them. None of us here like that word. I do not particularly like to be rebuked. But I can tell you from personal experience, there have been times in my life where I needed it. And there will probably be times in my future where I will need it. And I believe the same is true for every one of us here. What Jesus did to the disciples is exactly what God does with us when we have stubborn refusal to believe. Not some doubts. I'm talking here about refusing to believe what is true and real. When we do that, the Bible says that God's only recourse is to come and give us a loving rebuke because he cares about us and because there has to be some change in the heart, which is what Ezekiel chapter 36 says. God, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Let me explain what that means. That means that the remedy for a calloused, stubborn, hard heart is a transformed heart. 
a heart of flesh, a new heart. According to Brene Brown, who is a a research professor at the University of Houston, she has studied for years vulnerability, and here's what she says. She she says and believes that a, a heart that is new, a heart that is transformed, is a whole heart, and it's only made possible by vulnerability. And that vulnerable people are not weak people. Vulnerable people are just aware and comfortable with their imperfections. And so what she suggests, I agree wholeheartedly with. That for us to have a transformed heart, we've got to have a heart that is vulnerable and is capable of of experiencing both pleasure and extraordinary pain. When we don't have that kind of heart, it affects the hardness and the callousness of our hearts. So with that, I want to give you four evidences and four ways that you can tell whether or not you have a transformed heart. You might want to write these down. They're significant enough that you, I believe, can take time this week to think and pray and even go a little deeper into this. We're just going to scratch the surface on these four today as I drive this talk to a close. You want to know how your heart is transformed or whether you today have more of a calloused hard heart? I think there are four evidences and four ways to tell. And for each one of these, I want to use a passage of Scripture from Psalm 51. Last year on my sabbatical, God took me deep into this psalm. I journaled every day. I wrote down thoughts that I was feeling God nudge and impress on my heart. And I found it all had to do with my heart. It all had to do with what God wanted to do inside of me. Here's the first thing I can tell you about a transformed heart. A transformed heart is self-aware. A transformed heart is self-aware. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 3. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Did you notice how many times the word I and my appear in those three verses? Here's the reason. A person with a transformed heart doesn't need someone else to point out their sins. They are fully aware of their spiritual deficiencies. They are fully aware of the way that they need to continue to grow. And they're willing to admit it. Second thing I believe wholeheartedly about a transformed heart is that a transformed heart is capable of being wounded and broken. A transformed heart is capable of being wounded and broken. Verses 4 and 5. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. That is not suggesting that David was born through a sinful act. What it is suggesting is there is no such thing as an innocent child. There's no such thing as an innocent child. Every single child that is born is born with a sin nature, which is why the act of dedication is so significant. A transformed heart is willing to look back and say, I recognize 
that my life was broken from the beginning. I've been a wounded person, and I need God's help. The third thing about a transformed heart is that I believe a transformed heart is emotionally honest. Emotionally honest with God, emotionally honest with themselves, and emotionally honest with others. Verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me no wisdom. A person with a transformed heart doesn't have the energy to spend time trying to be the person they should be because they're too busy trying to be the person God created them to be. They're too busy worrying about being their true self that they don't have time to pretend and be somebody they aren't. They're emotionally honest. And finally, a transformed heart is God-centric, which means a transformed heart puts God on the throne of the heart. The self and the individuality of your life is no longer the one who drives the engine. God does. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You know how we like to pray? We like to pray, God, create a clean heart in them. Renew a steadfast spirit in my neighbor. Put a clean heart in that other person. Take care of my spouse. When God is saying to us, take care of you. Take care of your heart. Put me at the center of your life. Be God-centric. And when we are God-centric, our hearts are transformed. They become soft and pliable to God. I close with this. It's a quote by a man by the name of C.S. Lewis. He's a great philosopher and author who actually wrote a book entitled The Four Loves. Here's what he says. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up in a safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To truly love is to be vulnerable. God wants us to know him. And the only way to really know God is to know ourselves really, really well. Let's pray together. This morning as I pray, I suspect there are people in this auditorium who maybe at times wrestle through their, their doubts. I want to encourage you, keep wrestling. Keep going after it. Keep asking the questions. Keep searching. It's good. But if you're in this auditorium today and your issue is stubborn disbelief, that you choose when it comes to faith and God to put your feet in the ground and say, you know what, I shall not be moved. I don't believe. Even though it's true and real, 
You do it to your own hurt. And this morning, I don't believe it's an accident that you're in this auditorium. I don't believe it's an accident you're here today. What God wants to do is he wants to come, and maybe as I've been sharing this morning, maybe you've been impressed in your heart that you've been getting a stern, loving rebuke from God. It's time. Can I ask you, don't ignore that. Don't ignore that. Know that God is doing that because he loves you and he wants to draw you into a relationship with him. It's going to be a relationship that's going to be filled with faith, yes. It's going to be filled with trusting, yes. But as you get to know God as more trustworthy, your trust will rise and your suspicion will lower. But I invite you this morning to cross that line of faith and choose to put your confidence and your trust in him. He loves you that much that he wanted you to hear this this morning. And so this morning as I pray, let's just confess to God our hearts. Let's be honest with God about what's in our hearts. And let's invite him to do a work inside of us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you today and thank you that blessed are those who saw you but more blessed are those who don't and didn't see you and yet believe. That's really the essence, Lord, of what this series has been about, is helping us to take those appearances, to learn things about our lives and how we can become transformed people. God, for the parent here today that wants to be a transformed parent, it begins with a transformed heart. For the husband or the wife that today wants a transformed marriage. It begins with a transformed heart. It begins with a, a heart that becomes pliable in your hands. For the individual today that wants to be a transformed employee or employer, and they want to lead their business better or be a better employee, that begins with a transformed heart. God, we can't produce who we aren't. So Father, we know you as we know ourselves, and help us to an honest confession, bring our hearts to you today, the condition of them. We're not going to surprise you by anything we tell you, by anything that you hear from our hearts reaching out to you today. You already know it. But Lord, you want us to be aware of what's inside of us. And so God, we lay our hearts before you today. We give our hearts to you. We ask that you'll take them and you'll fashion them into a heart of flesh. Remove the heart of stone from us today, God. If there's anyone in this auditorium, Lord, who has stubborn disbelief, help them today to just yield their hearts to you, I pray. We thank you for your presence. And we thank you for the life that we can have by putting our faith and our trust in what we do not see putting our faith and our trust in you, having the assurance of the things we hope for, the confidence of the things not seen. Bless us this holiday weekend, we pray. We thank you. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.